everybody. I'm Sophia. I'm a functional medicine dietitian. If you're new here and I specialize in gut health and hormones. And today I'm super excited because I have my good friend and fellow functional medicine dietitian, Justin here. And today we're talking about adrenal health and addressing adrenal health through functional nutrition. So Justin is an absolute genius. He is so incredibly knowledgeable. And today I invited him on to speak about adrenal health which is one of the topics that he's most passionate about and something he addresses regularly within his client population. So Justin is a registered dietitian with the mission to boost your well-being. Justin's professional journey started in New Orleans studying at Tulane University, where he realized the immense impact of nutrition on health. Today, he specializes in the fascinating connection between the body and the brain. With a master's in nutrition, health span, and longevity from USC, he's your go-to expert in cognitive decline, autoimmune disease, and adrenal dysfunction. Justin blends conventional medicine with holistic healing to empower you on your path to vibrant health. So Justin, thanks so much for coming on. What drew you originally to functional medicine? Well, hi, Sophia. Thank you so much for having me on. I think that my introduction into functional nutrition or maybe even functional medicine at large is probably pretty similar to a lot of people that have been drawn to this space. It started with my own health issues. Going back to my education in New Orleans, uh, anyone who's familiar with that part of the country knows just kind of how damp and boggy it is. And no surprise now, I, I came out of my first year there living in this really dark, moldy dorm room with some mystery health conditions, some chronic strep infections, all these things that were a mystery to me. Um, I couldn't really figure out what was going on with some of my conventional doctors. So I turned over to some recommended functional medicine doctor, had no idea what that was, found a ton of things really with mold being at the core of it for me. And then peeling back the layers of the onion over many, many years, it, it piqued my interest. And by the time I was done with undergraduate and certainly interested in moving into the nutrition space, I wanted to carve my own path into the functional medicine field to see the effects. Specifically, my interests at the time were on Alzheimer's prevention and treatment. So I came in at that angle, but really learned that functional medicine at its core is all about the entire body. It's, it's everything. So even when you specialize into one area, you really are still somewhat of a generalist um, within medicine. So having that traditional nutrition background of, you know, because for anyone listening, Sophie and I went to the same master's program. Yes. We were in the same year. So having that conventional nutrition background, working clinically in hospitals, and then overlapping that with my own experience, and then eventually my own education in functional medicine and functional nutrition, I just felt really satisfied with the field that I was stepping into at that point. Wow, that's a really fascinating story. Um, so what drew you to adrenal health? Adrenal health for me definitely came later on. Like I said, my interest really started in the brain itself and in Alzheimer's specifically. I have some family members who unfortunately suffered from Alzheimer's disease and I was looking for anything that may help, you know, unfortunately, Alzheimer's disease is such a helpless disease with our current understanding of pathophysiology, current medication options. So many of us are forced into these integrated health spaces to look for other answers. And that's where my interest began. But diving into the brain, I, I realized that really the brain does not end at the brain you know, it's connected to the body by this thing called the neck and it informs everything that's going on. And as I realized the deep influence of the brain on the rest of the organs and the process through which the brain regulates things such as stress, I was really drawn into adrenal health and the stress response as a major driver of a lot of diseases, especially once I started working with patients and realized how central stress was to so many issues and how that was manifesting through different adrenal dysfunctions. It solidified my 
my passion in that area. So you brought up the word adrenal dysfunction. I think luckily stress has become a really trendy topic these days. Um, but I think there's kind of a misunderstanding between adrenal fatigue, adrenal dysfunction, HPA axis dysfunction. There's all these words kind of being thrown around. Can you clarify what is actually adrenal dysfunction and whether or not adrenal fatigue is a real thing or not? Absolutely. So I, I think maybe importantly, I think a lot of people are throwing around the words and they don't even really know what the adrenal glands are. So just to back it up all the way to our anatomy, we have these adrenal glands and they're these little triangular shaped glands that sit on top of the kidneys and they're responsible for a whole spectrum of things. They regulate our metabolism, our immune system, blood pressure, and certainly most importantly, this conversation um, today is, is stress. They are a huge part of the stress response. So they work by secreting different stress hormones. Um, so this is epinephrine, norepinephrine, and cortisol, but also things like our aldosterone, which regulates the salt in our body. We have androgens like DHEA, androstenedione, testosterone, and then even to some extent, they also are responsible for estrogens. So just as this background, we have these, these kind of really important organ in two of them. We have two adrenal glands on top of each kidney. Um, and people do talk a lot about adrenal dysfunction, adrenal fatigue, stress. And I will say that we should cl definitely clarify our vocabulary because definitely at least adrenal fatigue is a misnomer for sure. Um, and dysfunction maybe doesn't even get to the root of what's happening. So rewinding all the way to stress is probably the place to start. So in terms of stress, it really, stress could be anything. Stress can be physical. I think we've all experienced things like stub our toe. That's stressful to the body because now it has to go divert resources towards that toe and repair those tissues. Um, we have things like psychological stresses, which could be emotions. Um, they could get triggered throughout the day. This could be fear, it could be anxiety, grief. And then we also have things like our cognitive stresses. So this goes into like feelings of like what we're able to do, like being overwhelmed. Um, you'd get a bunch of tasks to do at work. You feel that stress. I think that's how a lot of us colloquially use the term stress is yeah. to describe that feeling of having this huge burden and like ah, feeling. Right. So I think a I, lot of people only think about psychological stressors, but stress is really about your cumulative stressors contributing to this allostatic load. So, so when you're considering all your stress, you got to take into consideration the physical, like you said, the psychological, the cognitive, there's way more than just having a bad day at work. It's everything. Absolutely. So it, it definitely starts there. We have this stress and we're going to perceive it through any number of mechanisms. So maybe going back to the stubbing the toe, we have some sort of sensory input. It travels to the brain. Sometimes it comes from within the brain itself, like our psychological stressors, it could come from a lot of things. We might see something that's coming from the eyes, like something really scary that frightens us, hear a loud banging noise that makes us jump. Those all go into the brain. And then we move on to how the brain's going to process it through the stress response. So that either comes in through the amygdala, or I should say it certainly comes in through the amygdala, which is where we're going to start to process things as an emotion. And this is more or less our brain security guard. It's wanting to keep us safe and assess the situation and determine the level of fear. And at the same time that the amygdala is being stimulated by these stresses, we also have this part of the brain called the locus ceruleus. And I always think of this as kind of our alarm bell within the brain. And it's going to wake up and start releasing norepinephrine and kind of just dousing the brain and washing it with this neurotransmitter, which makes us alert and ready to act. And notably, the locus ceruleus, by ringing this bell, is going to influence our frontal lobe, which is the part of our brain that's responsible for our decision making, rational thinking, 
And the point here is that if we truly have this big stress or this big threat to our survival, it's not time to go ahead and think rationally about what's happening. We need to act purely on emotion and instinct if we need to run, if we need to fight, whatever we need to do. So that's this kind of intro to the stress response of everything that's happening within the brain from a stressor. Um, so I think starting there is essential. If we're really talking about root cause functional medicine, that is the root of the problem. We have this whole maladaptive stress response at a certain point, which is really where the problem lies. Um, so just kind of thinking about it, we have the sensation, the perception, the amygdala, the locus ceruleus, hypothalamus, pituitary gland, and then finally the adrenal gland. And so, you know, can we really blame the adrenal gland for the cortisol levels being high? Um, I don't think so. I don't think that's entirely fair. Um, and, you know, in terms of fatigue, it's just not true that the adrenal gland tires out. There is, you know, what's called adrenal insufficiency, and this is called Addison's disease. It's an autoimmune destruction of cortisol secreting cells in the adrenal gland. Um, but when we're talking about adrenal fatigue, we're not talking about Addison's disease. That's hopefully been ruled out at this point. Um, it's because we're starting to see adrenal hormones become low in circulation. So, so specifically, that's going to be DHEA and cortisol. And as to why these hormones are becoming low, there is a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of misinformation behind this decompensation. You know, people talk about pregnenolone, steel, and all these things that just don't exist. Um, but as of right now, there are just a lot more question marks than answers to this pathophysiology of the fatiguing process. But the main point is that it's not the fault of the adrenal gland. So maybe just to take a few steps back as to like the stress response all the way down to the adrenal glands, mm -hmm. I could finish filling in that picture because where we left off, we had a perception of stress, mm -hmm. whether perceived entirely psychologically or whether entirely physical, our brain doesn't really know the difference. The emotion center, the amygdala is fired up. The locus ceruleus is ringing that alarm bell and dumping um, neurotransmitter norepinephrine all over our brain and our reasonings turned off. And the next step is that the hypothalamus, which I like to think of as this like master interpreter and translator of the brain is taking in everything that's going on and creating a synopsis to get ready to send out to the body to let it know what's going on. So the hypothalamus is going to take that stress response and it's going to decide to send a signal down the HPA axis, which stands for hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So starting with the hypothalamus, it sends out corticotropin releasing hormone or CRH down to the pituitary gland. And then as the second stop, the pituitary gland is going to send, that sits right at the bottom of the brain. It's going to send that message all the way down to the adrenal gland through um, ACTH, which is adrenocorticotropic hormone. And this ACTH is finally going to reach the adrenal glands. It's going to take that stress response. And finally, it's going to kind of hit the adrenal glands much later down the line. Um, and at that point, it's going to have them release a burst of adrenaline um, in response to the stressor. And that's going to boost our heart rate. It's going to pump blood into the muscles. And it's going to pretty much ready us for any swift action that we need to take on a you know, on our body level, not just in our brain anymore. Um, and at the same time, the adrenal glands are also producing cortisol. It takes a little bit longer than the adrenaline to kick in, but this is our body's natural energy booster. And it's going to enhance our focus um, and release extra energy into the body. And so really, by the time that happens, it's really the end result of our stress response um, driven by the HPA access placing our body into a full sympathetic activation fight or flight mode. So that's really it. We have it from the head all the way down to adrenal glands. And by the time it's down there, we're kind of at the 
um, full tilt fight or flight mode, like all the way. Um, and then under good circumstances, our, when the stressor subsides or it no longer poses a threat, our body should want to start to resolve the response. So the high cortisol level in our blood that's caused by our adrenal gland is going to talk back to the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland and make them stop releasing the CRH and the ACTH, which is our negative feedback loop that slows down the HPA axis. And then the cortisol is going to start to drop. The HPA axis is lower, you know, it's slowing down and our body is going to naturally and gradually return to the baseline. Um, the heart rate and the blood pressure is going to decrease. Our physiological responses are going to normalize. And finally, now our body is going to shift over to restoring everything that happened during that response, repairing any muscle damage, restoring nutrients. Um, it's a very expensive, uh, metabolically expensive process to happen. So when we're talking about adrenal dysfunction and the reason that I said before, it's probably not the best term is because if we're going to look at that entire thing and then point the finger at the adrenal gland, I think it's probably missing the point. It's not really our adrenal glands fault that they release the cortisol into the body. They're just doing their job. So as for what we usually mean when we're talking about adrenal dysfunction, we're talking about this entire response, usually on a chronic level where it's just in constant activity. Um, it's not this acute trigger response and resolution. It's kind of like trigger, perpetuated trigger, and then perpetuated response with no resolution. That's what people typically are referring to when they talk about adrenal dysfunction. But again, is, is it really the adrenal gland dysfunctioning? No, not really. Right. Yeah. The body wants to get through the stressor. It's fight or flight response. So yeah, I definitely agree with you that that word is not super accurate or, you know, fair to the adrenals. They're just doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> but um, over time, if we're not adapting to these stressors, um, we often get into more of like a burnout phase. How do you tell whether your body is completely at burnout versus kind of adapting in this adaptive state? Yeah, so I, I think that brings us to the concept of chronic stress. So, you know, chronic stress, going back to all the different types of stress, there's so many different types and we could talk about all the different types of chronic stress. It's very perfect for a functional medicine podcast or a functional nutrition podcast. Um, but this is going to subject the brain to relentless stimulation as long as the stressor persists. So this, you know, really ranges from it could be our work pressures, personal issues. And this is just keeping our, our stress response constantly active. Um, and this persistent stress stimulation is going to lead to the prolonged suppression of the frontal lobe. So remember the locus ceruleus, the alarm bells turning off our rational decision-making um, and our, you know, our rational thinking, complex problem solving, and it kind of starts this vicious cycle where the stressor remains unresolved in part due to our impaired ability to make well-considered decisions. And the stressor, maybe the trigger is still there, maybe it's not, but at some point it's kind of self-perpetuating because we're not thinking clearly, we're in panic, we're anxious, there's you know any such thing, and we're spinning on this stress response. So it becomes very chronic. And this, um, you know, over time, this is sending that same message down the HPA axis. The hypothalamus is like, things are still crazy up here. I think we need to still be responding. So we're going down all the way to the adrenal glands. And um, at, at a certain point, we do start to become desensitized towards this stress response. Um, and this can initially lead to chronically high cortisol levels in the body. Um, and this has multiple negative side effects, um, in, you know, including impaired immune function, disrupted sleep patterns, and an increased risk of other chronic diseases. And we're also having this um, sympathetic nervous system domination, 
So we're like have heightened alertness, muscle tension. It's contributing again back to these feelings of anxiety and physical symptoms and self-perpetuating. Um, and yes, eventually at some point for a variety of reasons we know and some that we don't know, the adrenal glands lower their production of a few essential hormones, namely cortisol and DHEA. Um, and this is why the term fatigue has come forward because it's like, as if the adrenal gland is so tired of the stress response, it just gives up. In truth, the adrenal gland is not getting tired and giving up. There are many reasons why it's lowering it. Again, some we know, some we don't, but it's not a fatigue. Um, so, you know, if we have chronic stress, we put ourselves on this continuum. Whereas if we stay on it long enough, we are going to have, start to have these maladaptive stress responses all the way down to the level of the adrenal gland. So how does somebody recognize that they have adrenal dysfunction? The symptoms of adrenal dysfunction, they really run the gamut because first and foremost, we, we need to be looking for those symptoms of the adrenal insufficiency we were talking about or specific to adrenal diseases. And this is gonna be like easy bruising of the skin, dark areas on the skin, um, a history of fainting, purple streaks on the abdomen, body hair loss, um, and also like the buffalo hump, um, which is kind of like a fat deposition on the back of the neck. So if you're seeing these classic symptoms of adrenal disease, such as Cushing's or Addison's disease, these are completely red light referral symptoms in my book. Um, this is go see an endocrinologist and get help and get some further testing on that. For you know, following that, ruling out those symptoms. I like to split symptoms into either like high cortisol symptoms or low cortisol symptoms. Um, because remember, chronic stress will go from chronically high cortisol levels eventually to chronically low cortisol levels if it's not, you know, treated for a long time. So some high cortisol symptoms are going to be like a someone coming in and saying, all of a sudden, I've just gained all this weight around my midsection. It's not normal for me. That's a symptom. Um, sugar and carbohydrate cravings. We have depression, specifically with high cortisol, it would be considered a melancholic depression, which is worse in the morning. And it's more of an agitated, irritable depression. Um, we're also going to be seeing high adrenaline signs and symptoms like perhaps muscle wasting, bone loss, cold extremities um, from that stress response being constantly activated. As for high cortisol GI symptoms, it's going to be more of like a diarrhea and reflux, just kind of like a overstimulation of the GI tract. Um, cortisol is going to be suppressing the immune system. So someone might be getting sick a lot. Um, insomnia, because cortisol is what wakes you up. If it's high, by the time you're going to bed, it's going to be really hard to get to sleep. And then that, that would bring us, you know, into our low cortisol symptoms. We have, instead of sugar cravings, we have salt cravings because one of the hormones, um, aldosterone that the adrenal gland makes is responsible for that salt regulation. So sometimes at, after so much stress stimulation, we start to have issues with electrolyte regulation and that could manifest as a salt craving. Anxiety, we see this both um, usually start in the high cortisol state and transition through into the low cortisol state. Um, depression for low cortisol is gonna be more commonly atypical uh, and atypical manifestation. So that's worse in the evening, um, more apathetic. You could get what's called leaden paralysis, which is like this feeling of like actual heaviness to the body, um, an increased sensitivity towards rejection, like on an emotional level, hypersomnia, so sleeping too much because we don't have that cortisol to keep us awake. We get brain fog, and then GI symptoms would lean more towards constipation. So those are kind of the signs and symptoms I'm looking for and to split them into red flag, like this is, we need to see a, a, you know, a doctor who could look into Addison's or Cushing's, and then we have high cortisol and low cortisol. So would you be able to touch a little bit more on 
is all stress bad? Is all stress good? I, we, we break down stresses into the two types of stress. We have the eustress, which you talked about the good stressors. And then we have the distress, which are really our, our stressors that are kind of getting the best of us. Certainly it is subjective. You might, one person might watch a scary movie and like come out feeling triumphant and another person might go have nightmares in bed later. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that our, our body really wants to adapt from stress to become more resilient. So if we're facing a reasonably difficult challenge, the body's going to attempt to liberate resources. That's really what the point of the stress response is. It's to survive and to triumph. And so we increase energy, which we could talk about a little later through mechanisms within the body to rise to this stress occasion. And assuming that we succeed, um, we're going to come out on the other side, be more confident with more skills. And that could be physiologically and that could be um, psych psychologically. So, you know, a common example we use for a type of use stress is exercise. Um, if we're going to lift a weight and we want to get stronger, we're going to have to increase the burden of that weight. So we're going to have to do some sort of like progressive overload where we're increasing the weight each time we're working out. It's definitely a stress on the body. It's going to rip up our muscles. It's going to cause inflammation. But at the end of it, because our bodies hopefully are strong enough to be able to handle that amount of stress, we're going to heal um, during the recovery process and get stronger by the end and more competent. So I guess to even add more onto what you're saying, I think there's a level of like objective, uh, you know, of objectivity to whether something's stressful to one person or another um, in terms of our physiological stress. And then, yeah, we have the distress. So these are stresses that we don't really come out on the other side with a positive effect. Um, but even the reality of a distress is that it's not always going to be the same for every person. A young, healthy person might get the flu and they're going to be fine. They might feel sick for a few days, but at the end, their immune system is much more robust. They have antibodies and that makes them stronger. But if you have an older frail person with, um, you know, that's not as capable of fighting the flu, they could come out with long-term damage. They might not survive at all. And certainly that's not a good stress. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's the subjective differences between what's a good stress and a bad stress, maybe going back to the psychological stressors. But physiologically, we could often look at someone's body and make objective um, judgments about whether a stress is gonna be good or bad to someone. What are the long-term consequences of adrenal dysfunction? So the long-term consequences, it kind of goes back to the list of the symptoms I just spoke about. You know, it's a chicken or the egg scenario, but the prolonged activation of the stress response and the resulting adrenal dysfunction does have many um, consequences on the entire body. So, you know, if we're gonna address cortisol as an isolated hormone, I think we could look at the short-term effect versus the long-term effect of cortisol. You know, why is our body secreting so much cortisol in the first place? What is its goal there? You know, short-term, cortisol is gonna dump glucose into the blood, and this gives us our immediate boost in energy. Um, additionally, it's going to liberate amino acids from our skeletal muscles to give our body the building blocks for whatever type of thing it needs to build in that moment. And then, you know, shifting from that short term, like, yay, cortisol is great to long term, you know, this mechanism is going to cause prolonged hyperglycemia and, you know, inevitably lead towards insulin resistance. And at the same time, as the, there's a breakdown in skeletal muscle, our metabolic rate is going to go down. Um, and also cortisol is stimulating this enzyme called lipoprotein lipase, which starts shuttling the free fatty acids from our bloodstream into the adipose tissue, leading to that increased uh, fat around the midsection that we were just talking about. So short-term, great, we have tons of energy, we got protein. Um, and then like long-term, we see this complete degradation of a healthy metabolism, lowering metabolism, increased fat storage, blood sugar dysregulation. So that's one aspect. Then we have immune health, our immune system, short-term, 
Cortisol is going to dampen the immune system and that's going to block inflammation. Long-term, our immune system is going to stay suppressed. So we're going to get immunosuppression and like kind of this, interestingly, this turns into increased inflammation over time. So that's our immune system. Then of course we have our mental health because like we said, this starts in the brain through normal mechanisms, but it's undeniable the amount of comorbidity of this stress response and adrenal dysfunction with um, psychiatric disease. So, you know, hopefully looking back, you'll remember that locus ceruleus, the little alarm bell, um, and it switches our brain from rational to instinctual and reactive. And this same alarm bell, well, it could also be stimulated from our sort of cortisol secretion from the adrenal glands. So once again, we're getting trapped in this feed forward loop where it gets really hard to escape because it literally we're losing our ability to reason. So, you know, depending on many variables, we might see psychiatric manifestations ranging from anxiety and depression um, to PTSD bipolar disorders, um, OCD, schizophrenia, and, you know, honestly, the list goes on because there's no denying this interaction between brain and body that's occurring along with this metabolic um, issues as well, which we know plays a huge role in mental health. Um, we also have our hormones, um, you know, in, in terms of hormones, excess stress and altered cortisol levels, they could really cause all sorts of funky imbalances. Um, we have our thyroid gland, you know, high cortisol and low cortisol cause our thyroid hormone to be turned off into this form that we call reverse T3. Um, and this also explains some of our symptoms um, like fatigue and weight gain, cold extremities um, is because of this effect of the dysregulated cortisol onto the thyroid gland. And then we have our sex hormones. So stress is going to lower the production of a very important hormone that we call DHEA. And this is a master hormone that could really be turned into a, a wide array of different sex hormones. So when I'm thinking about it, I usually think about it as like flour for a baker. So, you know, whether this baker wants to bake cookies, they want to bake a cake, they want to bake bread, regardless, they do need flour um, to start that process. So in the case of our hormones, this could be things like our estrogens, you know, the estriol, estradiol, estrone, um, testosterone, the derivatives thereof. Um, and so without getting into the two into the weeds about hormones, stress could really cause these things to go all over the place. When we're looking at hormones and a stress response, it could get really funky looking. Um, so as a result, symptomatically, we might see things like menstrual irregularity, PMS, fertility issues, decreased libido, mood changes, and so many other um, symptoms associated with stress and sex hormones. And then we have gut health, which again, that chicken or the egg, what's causing what? Um, we could have chronic stress leading to intestinal permeability. Um, we know that cortisol over time is going to shift our bacterial composition we're going to have different hunger hormones floating around from that stress. So we're going to be eating differently. We might be going towards those carbohydrates or towards the salty things, which is going to cause you know any type of shift in our microbiome. Our circadian rhythm is compromised um, from the bugs in our gut too, um, from these things called clock genes that are regulated from the stress response as well. We might have this high or low motility we talked about. So the IBS with diarrhea, it might be constipation. Um, going to go back to our horm hormonal health about, you know, reabsorption of hormones, you know, elimination, nutrient malabsorption is a big one. And then of course, um, lowered vagal tone. One of the primary, you know, effects of the stress response is to turn off digestion because we don't need it. And if we're always there, then we're never digesting. And that goes back to protein needing to build the neurotransmitters and the vitamins. And so gut health is super big as well. So how does this all kind of relate back to nutrition? How can we support our adrenals with nutrition and diet? This whole process is incredibly metabolically intensive. There are a lot of vitamins, minerals, proteins, energy needed to drive this response. So on a basic level, it's 
entirely dependent on how many resources we have in our body from our diet. Now, maybe more specifically, um, we could talk about the different types of things that are required. So starting at the top, we need our B vitamins for our neurotransmitter synthesis, because like we've spoken about, this does start in the brain. And these vitamins are what we need to turn the protein in our diet into neurotransmitters. So that's dopamine, serotonin, epinephrine, just you know, as an example. Um, and in turn, this brings up protein, of course, which is the base ingredient for pretty much everything in our entire bodies. So consuming and absorbing, you know, key on absorbing adequate protein for our diets is really essential for all health in this example, certainly important for our adrenal and cognitive health. Um, we have magnesium is another big one. It helps with our body sensitivity towards cortisol. So we don't need to produce as much. And then it's also involved kind of like as a light switch, turning off the stress response once it should be resolving. There's omega-3s, um, which could be a podcast episode in and of itself because they're so expansive in their effects to the body. But, you know, broadly speaking, omega-3s turn down inflammation, which is always a major piece of the puzzle when we're talking about health. Um, you know, and not to mention that the brain is about 50 to 60% fat. Um, and 35% of this is going to be omega-3 fat. So just like protein, we could also think of omega-3s as a building block for the brain. Um, and I, I mean, the list really goes on and on. We have vitamin C, we have complex carbohydrates, adequate hydration, phytonutrients. Um, so it's, it's definitely like a lesson in overall well-being. So maybe as a way to simplify it, we could think about like, where are we going wrong to kind of drive us into this place in the first place. Um, and I think it's certainly no secret to you and me that many Americans eat incredibly nutrient poor diets. Um, I mean, simply speaking, we, the sad diet, <laughs> right? The standard American diet, the sad diet. And this means that most Americans don't have the ingredients for the system to run properly. And that's like assuming that there's no external stressors at all which is never going to be the case. Um, and then like on top of that, we layer in all the highly processed junk food that, you know, these foods are loaded in sugar, which causes our blood sugar to spike, um, eventually insulin resistance and inflammation. And these are all incredibly potent drivers um, of our adrenal dysfunction, the stress response. Um, and, you know, I think so many of us are feeling so horrible from our diets um, and so people just over consume caffeine to compensate and to, just to pick them up. Um, and there's really good data showing that caffeine will cause your adrenal glands to secrete more cortisol for the entire day following the intake of the caffeine. Um, I think specifically coffee uh, tends to have the highest effect. And so if a stressor comes along and out after consuming the caffeine, the cortisol levels are going to spike even higher, um, you know, then first off we have not consuming caffeine and then we have consuming caffeine and then we have the caffeine plus the stress. And it's like, you know, tears up each time um, to be even more potent. And, you know, there's data showing that mental stressors and exercise following caffeine intake are, you know, those are stressors um, that will cause this huge spike in cortisol. So, you know, we have the nutrient poor diet, we have the junk food and the overconsumption of caffeine. That's definitely contributing towards a loss of our stress resilience. Um, and then, uh, you know, as well with the caffeine, it's, you know, not to mention these drinks are often loaded with sugar. So we have kind of this like perfect storm for perpetuating um, adrenal dysfunction and stress response. And yeah, I mean, really, I could go on for a while about this too. But I think the points there that if we want to start upstream um, and start, we're starting with a system that's already doesn't have the resources to function properly. We kind of have to start stepping our way out of that. Mm -hmm. So what are some ways that people can ensure they're meeting their nutrient recommendations here? 
I mean, it's tough. Making diet changes is tough, especially if you're starting from a place where many people are, you know, on their standard American diet to get to a place where our body's really happy could be quite a big departure from where you start. So really incremental steps, a hundred percent working with someone, you know, a healthcare professional, a dietitian, nutritionist who is well-versed in this area. Um, it, you know, I, I could talk in terms of end goals as to like where we want to end up. It doesn't mean you need to do it all at once. Never want to, you know, scare anyone away from starting that process. Um, so I think crucially, we need a nutrient rich diet to set ourselves up to even have the systems in place that we're supposed to. So this means getting in plenty of dark leafy greens, our sulfur rich vegetables, that's kind of our broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, um, onions, garlic, collard, Swiss chard, those types of things um, are deeply colored fruits and vegetables. So beets, carrots, berries, pomegranates, mangoes, bell peppers, um, you know, use your creativity there to kind of really eat the rainbow. Um, and then, yeah, if, if we need to, we get in your meeting with someone who knows what they're doing, you can start throwing in some vitamin and mineral supplements, maybe um, to kind of fill in the gaps where we need a little bit of extra support. Um, and then we, we do need to ensure adequate protein at this time. Now, like that's not too much and it's not too little. Um, generally speaking, we're looking at anywhere from like 0.8 to one grams of protein for kilograms of body weight. Um, and we need to make sure that the protein is being assimilated properly as well. So addressing gut health is an entirely relevant part of this. Um, and then I think carbohydrates could get tricky. And this is why I always emphasize working with a professional because there's data pointing towards low carb diets and even ketogenic diets as being beneficial. But there's also a lot of data showing that these diets could further the problem. So there's a lot of different opinions in the realms of carbohydrates for um, this adrenal dysfunction. But I think the takeaway point is that all data points towards the importance of you know, blood sugar stability um, and balance. So that means con consuming complex carbohydrates, combining fats um, and carbs and proteins all together, and eating meals also at regular intervals throughout the day. Um, that's probably the biggest takeaway for carbohydrates. And then maybe like the last essential um, would be those getting in those omega-3s. So that means regularly consuming foods um, like salmon, sardines, walnuts, chia, flax. Um, and again, we could always throw in an omega-3 supplement, um, especially I'm thinking for vegetarians and vegans. I, I, I tend to think that's a really good idea. Um, Right. Um, and kind of furthering this, I, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering about fasting since that's mm -hmm. become a little bit trendy. How does fasting play into all of this? Can that be too stressful on the body? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's one good answer to this question. Fasting has so many benefits for so many different people, but you know, at the end of the day, it does kind of work as being a stress on the body. Um, and so like even skipping one meal has been shown to cause a pretty significant cortisol spike. Um, so, I mean, if there's a reason to believe that metabolic dysfunction is like at the root of the problem, maybe there is a good argument there that the transient increase in stress has long-term beneficial side effects, you know, not side effects, but beneficial um, basically return on investment that would lower stress in the long term. Um, but yeah, I think again, that's a space where you should really be working with someone who could look at your picture and understand is fasting good for you? It's really hard to tell. And for people that are interested in supplements, I know you brought up potentially using an omega-3 supplement if you're vegetarian or vegan, especially. Um, are there any other supplements or nutraceuticals that you recommend to treat adrenal dysfunction? Definitely. Um, I do work with a lot of supplements and nutraceuticals with my patients. Um, 
like you said, definitely I work with omega-3 supplementation, magnesium, vitamin C, sometimes protein supplementation. Um, and then as for nutraceuticals, um, some of the big ones are like ashwagandha, uh, licorice, ginseng, L-theanine, chamomile, tulsi, sometimes 5-HTP, melatonin. Um, and then, some, you know, some of the ones that the doctors are always wagging their fingers at like St. John's Fort and uh, grapefruit juice, uh, which I think really stresses the importance of meeting with someone who's a qualified healthcare provider, who's going to look at your lab results, look at your medication and check for contraindications. Um, because yeah, like those, that grapefruit juice and the St. John's Fort have a lot of medication interactions. Um, so making sure that you don't just listen to this and go start taking all those supplements because also they're, they might not be good for you because we could look at licorice, for example, licorice is going to uh, raise our cortisol levels. Um, and so if you have a lot of cortisol, that's kind of the last thing you want to do. Um, so always off of lab work um, right. and with a professional for supplements and nutraceuticals. Yeah, with the nutraceuticals, just because, you know, something is natural doesn't mean that it can't be potent or have negative health effects. So definitely check with a provider first before supplementing with these things. Um, and I'm wondering also, so for people that have adrenal dysfunction or are listening and are thinking, wow, this kind of sounds like something that I'm going through, what are some ways that they can test or kind of assess for their adrenal dysfunction? There are some quite a bit of options out there. My personal preference is going to be a salivary cortisol rhythm with what's called a cortisol awakening response, um, which is effectively measuring two things. It's your three-point cortisol sample. It's like a salivary sample um, upon waking. So you take um, one the minute you open your eyes in the morning, another 30 minutes after that, and then the last one is 60 minutes from waking. And that's telling us what cortisol doing to wake us up in the morning. It's a little mini stress test for our bodies. And then also the cortisol rhythm, which is going to be about three to four points throughout the day. Since cortisol is highest in the morning and should be lowest at night, we want to make sure that we are following that natural um, diurnal rhythm of the cortisol. So if you're just going to measure one point during the day, I personally find there's just very little clinical utility to that metric. Um, and I, I personally use the Dutch plus test quite a bit. It's going to measure car, the diurnal cortisol um, rhythm, along with cortisone, which is a major metabolite of cortisol, along with some other metabolites as well. And I think this is really fills in the picture quite a bit better um, to our total HPA access load. Um, it has DHEA, testosterone, estrogens, progesterone. Um, and there's a lot of different types of hormones on that panel. Um, there's definitely a learning curve to interpreting it um, that we probably uh, won't talk about here because um, it's very complex. So I'm gonna avoid oversimplifying any results because I find that every single patient's results looks very, very different. And it's never, um, oh, you have result A and you get treatment A. It's very personalized at that point if I'm running such a comprehensive test like that. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I think some people don't realize that um, cortisol is a stress hormone. So mm -hmm. all of our hormones kind of work in harmony. So it can be really helpful to get a full hormonal picture um, depending on the person, just to kind of see like how things are influencing each other. So I think that's really great that you brought up kind of like the um, the urinary testing. Is there anything else that you want to add before we start wrapping up this episode? The big thing here is remembering that, it, you know, adrenal dysfunction doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with your adrenal gland. Um, and that if you do suspect that this is a big player for you to meet with someone who has good expertise in this area because it, it could be really tricky. It could feel really 
hard talking to doctors about this. I think that many of us have heard from the doctor, oh yeah, just, you know, lower your stress, go, I don't know, go do yoga. It's not that simple, unfortunately. So if you've ever gotten that and you've felt unsatisfied with that response, go, go meet with someone who knows what they're doing and you could get a lot of help that way. Right. The therapeutic relationship is so powerful in itself. And yeah, you got to take into consideration all of these different stressors. I think at the basis of functional nutrition is that there's this idea of, you know, food first, food is powerful, food is medicine. So support your body with these natural approaches, but also look at the holistic picture. You need to listen to the person that's coming in, individualize the approach, and really just take into consideration all of these moving parts, because it's not as simple as go do deep breathing, like go do yoga, like those things can be helpful, but stress is personal and it's, it's not as simple as that. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I am so glad that we had this conversation. I think that a lot of people are going to get a lot from this episode. Um, and if you want to learn more about Justin and his practice, Preserve Wellness, that's preserve without an E at the end, you can go to his Instagram or TikTok. On Instagram, his username is Justin, J-U-S-T-I-N, fair, P-E-R-R underscore R-D. And his TikTok is JustinPear.rd. And I will link that in the show notes as well. Um, and if you want to learn more about his practice or you're interested in working with Justin, he offers a free initial call to see if his services are right for your needs. His website is www.preservewellness.com. There's no E at the end. So P-R-E-S-E-R-V-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S.com. That will also be in the show notes. Um, thank you so much, Justin. I really hope that you will come on for another episode in the near future so we can continue this discussion. But thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sophia. It was a blast. <laughs>